Chapter 31 of The Eagle's Shadow by James Branch Cabell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Originally recorded by John M. Wilson for Bureau 42, donated to LibriVox with his express permission. 31. Dr. Geel, better than his word, had Billy Woods out of bed in five days. To Billy they were very long and very dreary days, and to Margaret very long and penitential ones. But Colonel Hugonan enjoyed them thoroughly, for, as he feelingly and infrequently observed, it is an immense consolation to any man to reflect that his home no longer contains more damn foolishness to the square inch than any other house in the United States. On all sides they sought for cockeye flinks, but they never found him, and to this day they have never found him. The fates, having played their pawn, swept it from the board, and cockeye flinks disappeared in Clotho's capacious pocket. All this time the young people saw nothing of one another. On this point, Giel was adamantian. In a sick room, he vehemently declared, a woman is well enough. But the woman is the devil and all. I have told that young man plainly, sir, that he doesn't see your daughter till he gets well. And by George, sir, he'll get well now, just in order to see her. Nature is the only doctor who ever cures anybody, Colonel. We humans, for all our pill-boxes and lancets, can only prompt her, and devilish demoralizing advice we generally give her, too, he added with a chuckle. Peggy! This was the first observation of Mr. Woods when he came to his senses. He swore feebly when Peggy was denied to him. He pleaded, he scolded, he even threatened as a last resort to get out of bed and go in immediate search of her, and in return Jill told him very affably that it was far less difficult to manage a patient in a straitjacket than one out of it, and that personally nothing would please him so much as a plausible pretext for clapping Mr. Woods into one of them. Jeel had his own methods in dealing with the fractious. Then Billy clamored for Colonel Hugonan, and subsequently the Colonel came in some bewilderment to his daughter's rooms. Billy says that will ain't to be probated, he informed her testily. I'm to make sure it ain't probated till he gets well. You're to give me your word you'll do nothing further in the matter till Billy gets well. That's his message, and I'd like to know what the devil this infernal nonsense means. I ain't a Fenian, nor yet a Guy Fox, daughter, and in consequence I'm free to confess I don't care for all this damn mystery and shilly-shallying. But that's the message, Miss Hugonan debated with herself, that I will do nothing further in the matter till Billy gets well, she repeated reflectively. Yes, I suppose I'll have to promise it. But you can tell him for me that I consider he is horrid and just as obstinate and selfish as he can possibly be. Can you remember that attractive? Yes, thank you, said the colonel. I can remember it, but I ain't going to. Nice sort of message to send a sick man, ain't it? I don't know what's gotten into you, Margaret. No, but gad, I don't. I think you're possessed of seventeen devils. And now, the old man demanded, after an awkward pause... Are you or are you not going to tell me what all this mystery is about? I can't, Miss Eugonan protested. It, it's a secret attractive. It ain't, said the colonel, flatly. It's some more damn foolishness. And he went away in a fret and using language. 32. Left to herself, Miss Eugonan meditated. Miss Eugonan was in her kimono. And oh, Madame Chrysostomim. Oh, Madam Butterfly, oh, Mimosa San and Pity Sing and Yum Yum and all ye vaunted beauties of Japan, 
if you could have seen her in that garb. Poor little ladies of the Orient, how hopelessly you would have wrung your henna-stained fingers. Poor little Ichabods of the East, whose glory departed irretrievably when she adopted this garment, I tremble to think of the heart-burnings and palpitations and harikaris that would have ensued. It was pink, the pink of her cheeks to a shade, and scattered about it were birds and butterflies and snaky emaciated dragons with backs like saw-teeth and prodigious fangs and claws and very curly tails, such as they breed in nankeen plates and used to breed on packages of firecrackers, all done in gold, the gold of her hair. Moreover, one might catch a glimpse of her neck, which was a manifest favor of the gods, and about it mysterious lacy white things intermingling with diverse tiny blue ribbons. I saw her in it once, by accident. And now I fancy, as she stood rigid with indignation, her cheeks flushed, it must have been a heady spectacle to note how their shell pink repeated the pink of her fantastic garment like a chromatic echo, and how her sunny hair, a thought loosened, a shade disheveled, clung heavily about her face, a golden snare for eye and heart, and how her own eyes, enormous, cerulean, twin sapphires such as in the old days might have ransomed a brace of emperors, grew wistful like a child's who has been punished and does not know exactly why, and how her petulant mouth quivered, and the long black lashes, golden at the roots, quivered too. Ah, yes, it must have been a heady spectacle. Now, she announced, I see plainly what he intends doing. He is going to destroy that will, and burden me once more with a large and influential fortune. I don't want it, and I won't take it, and he might just as well understand that in the very beginning. I don't care if Uncle Fred did leave it to me. I didn't ask him to, did I? Besides, he was a very foolish old man. If he had left the money to Billy, everything would have been all right. That's always the way. My dolls are invariably stuffed with sawdust, and I never have a dear gazelle to glad me with his dappled hide. But when he comes to know me well, he falls upon the buttered side. Or something to that effect. I hate poetry anyhow, it's so mushy. And this from the Miss Hugonin who, a week ago, was interested in the French décadent and partial to folk songs from the Romaic. I think we may fairly deduce that the reign of Felix Canaston is over. The king is dead, and Margaret's thoughts and affections and her very dreams have fallen loyally to crying, Long live the king, his majesty Billy the First. Oh, said Margaret, with an indignant gasp, what time her eyebrows gesticulated. I think Billy Woods is a meddlesome piece. That's what I think. Does he suppose that after waiting all this time for the only man in the world who can keep me interested for four hours on a stretch and send my pulse up to a hundred and make me feel those thrilly thrills I've always longed for, does he suppose that now I'm going to pay any attention to his silly notions about wills and things? He's abominably selfish. I shan't. Margaret moved across the room, shimmering, rustling, glittering like a fairy in a pantomime. Then, to consider matters at a greater ease, she curled up on a divan in much the attitude of a tiny Cleopatra riding at anchor on a carpeted Sidness. Billy thinks I want the money, bless his boots. He thinks I'm a stuck-up, grasping, purse-proud little pig, and he has every right to think so after the way I talked to him, though he ought to have realized I was in a temper about Kathleen Salmarez and have paid no attention to what I said, and he actually attempted to reason with me. If he'd had any consideration for my feelings, he'd have simply smacked me and made me behave. 
However, he's a man, and all men are selfish, and she's a skinny old thing, and I never had any use for her. Bother her lectures. I never understood a word of them, and I don't believe she does either. Women's clubs are all silly, and I think the women who belong to them are all bold-faced jigs. If they had any sense, they'd stay at home and take care of the babies, instead of messing with philanthropy and education and theosophy and anything else that they can't make head or tail of. And they call that being cultured. Culture. I hate the word. I don't want to be cultured, I want to be happy. This, you will observe, was, in effect, a sweeping recantation of every ideal Margaret had ever boasted. But Love is a canny pedagogue, and of late he had instructed Miss Hugonin in a variety of matters. Before God, loving you as I do, I wouldn't marry you for all the wealth in the world, she repeated, with a little shiver. Even in his delirium he said that. But I know now that he loves me and I know that I adore him, and if this were a sensible world, I'd walk right in there and explain things and ask him to marry me, and then it wouldn't matter in the least who had the money, but I can't, because it wouldn't be proper. Bother propriety. But bothering it doesn't do any good. As long as I have the money, Billy will never come near me, because of the idiotic way I talk to him, and he's bent on my taking the money simply because it happens to belong to me. I consider that a very silly reason. I'll make Billy Woods take the money, and I'll make him see that I'm not a little pig, and that I trust him implicitly. And I think I'm quite justified in using a little, we'll call it diplomacy, because otherwise he'd go back to France or some other objectionable place, and we'd both be very unhappy. Margaret began to laugh softly. I've given him my word that I'll do nothing further in the matter till he gets well, and I won't. But... Miss Hugonin rose from the divan with a gesture of sweeping back her hair, and then... Oh, treachery of tortoise shell! Oh, the villainy of those little gold hairpins! The fat, twisted coils tumbled loose and slowly unraveled themselves, and her pink and white face, half eclipsed, showed a delectable wedge between big, odorful, crinkly, ponderous masses of hair. It clung about her, a heavy cloak, all shimmering gold, like the path of sunset over the June sea, and Margaret, looking at herself in the mirror, laughed and appeared perfectly content with what she saw there. But, said she, if the fates were kind to me, and I sometimes think I have a pull with the gods, I'll make you happy, Billy Woods, in spite of yourself. The mirror flashed back a smile. Margaret was strangely interested in the mirror. She has ringlets in her hair, sang Margaret happily, a low, half-hushed little song. She held up a strand of it to demonstrate this fact. There's a dimple in her chin. And indeed there was, and a dimple in either cheek, too. For a long time afterward, she continued to smile at the mirror. I am afraid Kathleen Salmarez was right. She was a vain little cat, was Margaret. But, barring a rearrangement of the cosmic scheme, I dare say maids will continue to delight in their own comeliness, so long as mirrors speak truth. Let us then leave Miss Hugonin to this innocent diversion. The staidest of us are conscious of a brisk elation at sight of a pretty face, and surely no considerate person will deny its owner a portion of the pleasure that daily she accords the beggar at the street corner. 33. The Last Chapter We are incredibly informed that time travels in diverse paces with diverse persons, the statement being made by a lady who may be considered to speak with some authority, having triumphantly withstood the ravages of Kronos for a matter of three centuries. But I doubt if even the insolent sweet wit of Rosalind could have devised a fitting simile for Time's Gate at Selwood 
those five days that Billy lay abed. Margaret could not but marvel at the flourishing proportion attained by the hours in those sunlit spring days. And at dinner, say, her thoughts harking back to luncheon, recalled it by a vigorous effort as an affair of the dim yesteryears, a mere blurred memory, faint and vague as a druidical tenet or a Merovingian squabble. But the time passed for all that, and eventually, it was just before dusk, she came with Martin Jeel's permission into the room where Billy was, and beside the big open fireplace, where a wood fire cluttered companionably, sat a very pallid Billy, a rather thin Billy, with a great many bandages about his head. You may depend upon it, Margaret was not looking at her worse that afternoon. By actual count, Celestine had done her hair six times before reaching an acceptable result. And, yes, Celestine, you may get out that pale yellow dress. No, beautiful, the one with the black satin stripes on the bodice. Because I don't want my hair cast completely in the shade, do I? Now let me see. Black feather, gloves, large pompadour, and a sweet smile. No, I don't want a fan. That's a Lydia Languish trademark. And two silk skirts rustling like the deadest leaves imaginable. Yes, I think that will do. And if you can't hook up my dress without pecking and pecking at me like that, I'll probably go stark staring crazy, Celestine, and then you'll be sorry. No, it isn't a bit tight. Are you perfectly certain there's no powder behind my ears, Celestine? Now please try to fasten the collar without pulling all my hair down. Yes, I think that will do, Celestine. Well, it's very nice of you to say so, but I don't believe I much fancy myself in yellow after all. Equipped and armed for conquest, then, she came into the room with a very tolerable affectation of unconcern. Altogether, it was a quite effective entrance. I've been for a little drive, Billy, she mendaciously informed him. That's how you happen to have the opportunity of seeing me in all my nice new store clothes. Aren't you pleased, Billy? No, don't you dare get up. Margaret stood across the room, peeling off her gloves and regarding him on the whole with disapproval. They've been starving you, she pensively reflected. As soon as that Jeel person goes away, I shall have six little beefsteaks cooked and see to it personally that you eat every one of them. And I'll cook a cherry pie, quick as a cat can wink her eye, won't I, Billy? That Jeel person is a decided nuisance, said Miss Hugonan, as she stabbed her hat rather viciously with two hat pins and then laid it aside on a table. Billy Woods was looking up at her forlornly. It hurt her to see the love and sorrow in his face. But oh, how avidly his soul drank in the modulations of that longed-for voice. A voice that was honey and gold and velvet and all that is most sweet and rich and soft in the world. Peggy, said he, plunging at the heart of things, where's that will? Miss Hugonan kicked forward a little footstool to the other side of the fire and sat down and complacently smoothed out her skirts. I knew it, said she. I never saw such a one-idea person in my life. I knew that would be the very first thing you would ask for, Billy Woods, because you're such an obstinate, stiff-necked donkey. Very well. And Margaret tossed her head. Here is Uncle Fred's will, then. And you can do exactly as you like with it, and now I hope you're satisfied. And Margaret handed him the long envelope, which lay in her lap. Mr. Woods promptly opened it. That, Miss Hugonan commented, is what I term very unladylike behavior on your part. You evidently don't trust me, Billy Woods. Very well, I don't care. Read it carefully, very carefully, and make quite sure I haven't been dabbling in forgery of late. Besides, it's so good for your eyes, you know, after being hit over the head, Margaret suggested, cheerfully. Billy chuckled. That's true, said he. 
but I know Uncle Fred's fist well enough without having to read it all. Candidly, Peggy, I had to look at it because I... Well, I didn't quite trust you, Peggy. And now you're going to burn this interesting paper. You and I. Wait, Margaret cried. Uh, wait, just a moment, Billy. He glanced up at her in surprise, the paper still poised in his hand. She sat, with head drooped forward, her masculine little chin thrust out eagerly, her candid eyes transparently appraising him. Why are you going to burn it, Billy? Why? Mr. Woods repeated thoughtfully. Well, for a variety of reasons. First is that Uncle Fred really did leave his money to you, and burning this is the only way of making sure you get it. Why, I thought you wanted me to burn it. Last time I saw you, I was in a temper, said Margaret haughtily. You ought to have seen that. Yes, I, uh, noticed it, Mr. Woods admitted with some dryness. But it wasn't only temper. You've grown accustomed to the money. You'd miss it now. Miss the pleasure it gives you. Miss the power it gives you. You'd never be content to go back to the old life now. Why, Peggy, you yourself told me you thought money the greatest thing in the world. It has changed you, Peggy. This... Ah, oh, well, said Billy. We won't talk about that. I'm going to burn it because that's the only honorable thing to do. Ready, Peggy? It may be honorable, but it's extremely silly, Margaret temporized. And for my part, I'm very, very glad God had run out of his sense of honor when he created the woman. Phrases don't alter matters. Ready, Peggy? Ah, no, phrases don't alter matters, she assented with a quick lift of speech. You're going to destroy that will, Billy Woods, simply because you think I'm a horrid, mercenary, selfish pig. You think I couldn't give up the money. You think I couldn't be happy without it. Well, you have every right to think so after the way I've behaved. But why not tell me that is the real reason? Billy raised his hand in protest. I, I think you might miss it, he conceded. Yes, I think you would miss it. Listen, said Margaret quickly. The money is yours now, by my act. You say you care for me. If I am the sort of woman you think me, I don't say I am and I don't say I'm not, but thinking me that sort of woman, don't you think I'd, I'd marry you for the asking if you kept the money? Don't you think you're losing every chance of me by burning that will? I'm not standing on conventionalities now. Don't you think that, Billy? She was tempting him to the uttermost, and her heart was sick with fear lest he might yield. This was the eagle's last battle, and recreant love fought with the eagle against poor Billy, who had only his honor to help him. Margaret's face was pale as she bent toward him, her lips parted a little, her eyes glinting eerily in the firelight. The room was dark now, save in the small radius of its amber glow. Beyond that was darkness where panels and brasses blinked. Yes, said Billy gravely. Forgive me if I'm wrong, dear, but I do think that. But you see, you don't care for me, Peggy. In the summer house, I thought for a moment, ah, oh, well, you've shown me in a hundred ways that you don't care, and I wouldn't have you come to me not caring, so I'm going to burn the paper, dear. Margaret bowed her head. Had she ever known happiness before? It is not very flattering to me, she said, but it shows that you care a great deal. You care enough to let me go. Ah, yes. You may burn it now, Billy. And promptly he tossed it into the flames. For a moment it lay unharmed. Then the edges caught and crackled and blazed. And their heads drew near together as they watched it burn. There, thought Billy, is the end. Ah, ropes, daggers, and poisons. There is the end. Oh, Peggy, Peggy, if you could only have loved me. If only this accursed money hadn't spoiled you so utterly. Billy was quite properly miserable over it. 
but he raised his head with a smile. And now, said he, and not without a little, little bitterness, if I have any right to advise you, Peggy, I, I think I'd be more careful in the future as to how I use the money. You've tried to do good with it, I know, but every good cause has its parasites. Don't trust entirely to the haggages and jukesburys, Peggy, and, and don't desert the good ship philanthropy because there are a few barnacles on it, dear. You make me awfully tired, Miss Hugonan observed, as she rose to her feet. How do you suppose I'm going to do anything for philanthropy or any other cause when I haven't a penny in the world? You see, you've just burned the last will Uncle Fred ever made, the one that left everything to me, the one in your favor was probated or proved or whatever they call it a week ago. I think Billy was surprised. She stood over him, sharply outlined against the darkness, clasping her hands tightly just under her chin, ludicrously suggestive of a pre-Raphaelitish saint. In the firelight, her hair was an aureole, and her gown, yellow with multitudinous tiny arabesques of black velvet, echoed the glow of her hair to a shade. The dancing flames made of her a flickering little yellow wraith. And oh, the quaint tenderness of her eyes. Oh, the hint of faint, nameless perfume she diffused. Thus ran the meditations of Billy's dizzied brain. Listen, I told you I burned the other will. I started to burn it. Because I was afraid to. Because I didn't know what they could do to me if I did. So I put it away in my little handkerchief box. And if you'd had a grain of sense, you'd have noticed the orris on it. And you made me promise not to take any steps in the matter till you got well. I knew you would, so I had already sent that second will, sent it before I promised you, to Hunston Wick. He's my lawyer now, you know, and I've heard from him, and he has probated it. Billy was making various irrelevant sounds. And I brought that other will to you, and if you didn't choose to examine it more carefully, I'm sure it wasn't my fault. I kept my word like a perfect gentleman and took no step whatever in the matter. I didn't say a word when before my eyes you stripped me of my entire worldly possessions. You know I didn't. You burned it up yourself, Billy Woods, of your own free will and accord, and now Selwood and all that detestable money belongs to you, and I'm sure I'd like to know what you are going to do about it. So there, Margaret faced him defiantly. Billy was in a state of considerable perturbation. Why have you done this? He asked slowly, but a lucent something, half fear, half gladness, was wakening in Billy's eyes and her eyes answered him, but her tongue was far less voracious. Because you thought I was a pig! Because you couldn't make allowances for a girl who for four years has seen nothing but money and money worshippers and the power of money! Because I wanted your... your respect, Billy, and you thought I couldn't give it up. Very well, Miss Hugonan waved her hand airily toward the hearth. Now I hope you know better. Don't you dare get up, Billy Woods! but I think nothing short of brute force could have kept Mr. Woods from her. Peggy, he babbled. <sighs> Forgive me if I'm a presumptuous ass, but was it because you knew I couldn't ask you to marry me so long as you had the money? She dallied with her bliss. Margaret was on the other side of the table. Why, why, of course it wasn't, she panted. What nonsense. Look at me, Peggy. I don't want to. You look like a fright with your head all tied up. Peggy. This exercise is bad for an invalid. I... Oh, please sit down. Please, Billy, it is bad for you. Not until you tell me. But I don't. Oh, you make me awfully tired. Peggy, don't you dare stamp your foot at me. Peggy, please sit down. Now... Well, there's my hand, stupid, if you will be silly. 
Now sit down here. So with your head leaned back on this nice little cushion, because it's good for your poor head, and I'll sit on this nice little footstool and be quite, quite honest. No, you must lean back. I don't care if you can't see me. I'd much rather you couldn't. Well, the truth is, no, you must lean back. The truth is, I've loved you all my life, Billy Woods, and no, not yet, Billy. And if you hadn't been the stupidest beautiful in the universe, you'd have seen it long ago. You, you need lean back any longer, Billy. Oh, Billy, why didn't you shave? She is skinny, isn't she, Billy? Now, Peggy, you mustn't abuse Kathleen. She's a friend of mine. Well, I know she's a friend of yours, but that doesn't prevent her being skinny, does it? Now, Peggy. Please, Billy, please say she's skinny. Uh, well, she's a bit thin, perhaps. You angel. And you're quite sure you've forgiven me for doubting you? And you've forgiven me? Bless you, Peggy, I never doubted you. I've been too busy loving you. It seems to me as if it had been always. Why didn't we love one another in Carthage, Peggy? I think it was in Babylon, Billy. And we'll love one another? Forever and ever, dear. You've been to seek a wife, Billy boy. And oh, the dimple in her chin. Ah, oh, well, there was a deal of foolish prattle there in the firelight. Delectable prattle. Irresponsible as the chattering of birds after a storm. And I fancy that the eagle's shadow is lifted from Selwood, now that love has taken up his abode there. The End End of chapter 33 and end of The Eagle's Shadow by James Branch Cabell